Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Percy, and I'm here today with Nick. Hello. And Todd. Hey there. This week, we're kicking off our second season of the podcast and introducing you to our very first game, which is Blades in the Dark. Uh, This game is written by John Harper and published by Evil Hat Productions in association with 1-7 Design, and it came out in 2017. In this game, a group of scoundrels form a crew and hit the streets of Duskfall, a fantasy industrial city in a broader world where the crew must contend with law enforcement, rival gangs, tangled webs of lies and deceit, and even ghosts. Uh, The game explores the criminal underworld of the city and invites players to think intentionally not only about their character, but about their party as a whole and how it interacts with the wider world of the game. In short, and to quote the handbook, you're in a haunted Victorian era city trapped inside a wall of lightning powered by demon blood. And it contains podcast favorite ghosts and horses that hunt ghosts and ghosts with swords and swords that kill ghosts. Um, There's a lot to love here. There's a lot to love in this game. Put ghosts in your goddamn podcast, you cowards. And we are no longer cowards. Um, so today we just sort of wanted to touch on uh, some of the mechanics that you'll see pop up in our actual play, the session zero, of which you will hear next week. Um, but I think a good place to start is the world building of this game. Um, so I'll toss it to Nick. Sure. Thank you, Percy. Um, yeah, the Blades in the Dark is like many... Um, I'm hesitating even to use the word indie because Blades in the Dark is like so successful. (laughs) Um, uh, But but like many kind of single author games, let's say that or or one primary author. I don't know for a fact that nobody else did any writing for it, but uh, it it is very much built around that premise that Percy just said of haunted Victorian era city inside a wall of lightning powered by demon blood um it is also technically post-apocalyptic um because the the sort of premise of that victorian era city is that this was once a kind of traditional fantasy uh universe and then this cataclysm happened that blacked out the sun uh i think flooded the world i don't think i'm making that part up i I believe the oceans rose as well and all the oceans are now like this gross black ink and there are these huge demons out in the world um, that are kept at bay by this lightning powered or or this wall of lightning powered by demon blood, which means that their whole economy also revolves around uh, crews of very hardcore, essentially whalers who go out into the dark ocean and hunt these demons and bring their blood back to power everything in the city of Duskfall. Uh, I think it's a really exciting, cool setting. Um, And like many of those single author games, it is truly like lovingly detailed and put together. You can tell that John Harper cared a lot about this and (laughs) has like put a lot of energy into it. Well, and one of my favorite parts that, forgive me, you didn't mention about the apocalypse (laughs) is that it like destroyed the gates of hell or something, which is why the whole world is haunted is that like the dead need to be like processed in a certain way. Otherwise their ghosts almost immediately rise and like start haunting the city more. Right. Which also means that we'll get into the kind of gangs uh, in a moment, but that also means that there's like this whole branch of the city, like civic service, whose only job is to go around and like, process the dead like anytime somebody dies so that they do not become ghosts Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just really cool and really fascinating and in some ways like 
don't know, Todd, you have the physical book. How much of the book is the lore? Because reading through it on a PDF, it feels like it's a big chunk of the text, but it's hard to a huge estimate. chunk of the the book is lore. It's you know rival gangs. It's different. I would say it's like a third of the book at the very least is just like, here's a bunch of gangs. Here's a bunch of places within the city of Duskfall. Um, What I think is really cool about this world is that uh, in an attempt to make this like Victorian heisty game, um, John Harper also sets up this idea that like your actions must have consequences because you can't really leave the city very easily. And Mm. so a blundered, you know, smash and grab is actually much worse for you than a well thought out and crafted uh, heist in the middle of the night or something like that. And so you need to both be like really good at the thieving that you're going to do and think about how the gangs that you ally yourselves with or decide to screw over um, will affect you in the long run because it's not like you're just going to up and leave after this heist. You're like putting in um, really strong roots each time that you play. It's a kind of like paranoia. It's a classic pressure cooker situation of like you have to you have to have consequences because you can't leave you can't do the kind of traditional uh uh wandering vagrant adventurer thing of like burn down the town steal the gold and just like buzz off to the next town Mm -hmm. yeah and sort of speaking of of those rival gangs one of the most i think fun but also complicated parts of character and crew creation is figuring out like who your crew has relationships with and there's like this exhaustive list of like all of these different people who are players in the town there's a Um, whole sheet (laughs) there's there's so many things to choose from and like um it is it is almost almost overwhelming and it's like on a whole bunch of different levels like there are other criminal organizations there's law enforcement there's detective agencies there's government officials there's like nobility and like merchants and wealthy people like there's all of these different um like i would make a case that this game is like half political intrigue and half heist um mm-hmm. like i think i think there's an openness to like lean into whichever side of that is most interesting to you and your group but i feel like you could play this game almost entirely as a political intrigue sort of strategy social relationships game if you wanted to absolutely yeah it's it's all about kind of climbing the the hierarchy of those gangs because the that uh spreadsheet and the setting also ranks all of the gangs as a kind of default starting position for the world um and you start of course at the bottom Mm -hmm. um so if you were to play a long-term campaign of this that could be a major part of it is like trying to ascend that ladder and become as powerful as the most powerful gangs in the city or as the you know certain lesser branches of the government yeah yeah well like what i've found as a gm having gm blades in the dark in the past is that it is the most effective way to teach a skill that I think a lot of people who are entering DMing or GMing for the first time forget about, which is that there is a whole world outside of the people at the table playing. Like the world happens alongside and in response to what the players are doing. So like this game mechanizes that 
evolution in a way that I find extremely helpful to like actually think about like, oh, like what are the ripple effects of all of these things? And there is an invitation, I think, to yeah keep track of like all of the different things that are changing um, and butterfly affecting from what the party is specifically doing, which I think leads us well into thinking about sort of the structure of the game, which is a very sort of strict structure that within it you can find a lot of of openness in. Um, but something I really think is interesting, particularly for our purposes as like dramaturgs and theater people, is that Harper explicitly compares the structure to that of a TV show. Um, he says there are one or two main events, plus maybe some side story elements, all of which fit into an ongoing series. Um, and the sessions are all structured so that you like do there's like a planning phase and then you do some kind of job like a heist or a, some some thing that you spent a lot of time planning to do and then you have downtime and then you kind of go um and start at the beginning again after the gm sort of calculates like what the effects of your job were um, but it's this very structured regimented process yeah i think percy described it well as far as being that there is a sense of great openness within the game which I think is provided by the fact that that structure is actually so rigid. And it does mean that you have a sort of natural pacing to the game. I'd be curious, Percy, you mentioned you've GM'd Blades in the Dark before. I don't know for like how how long a stretch of games, but I would be curious to hear listeners write in um, whether <laughs> if you uh, it, whether that like structure ever becomes monotonous over you know like if you were to play this for two years or if it feels to me flexible enough that I don't think it would but I'd be curious for people's lived experiences uh, I didn't necessarily feel that it got monotonous but I think you also reach a point where there are things that you fast forward through to a certain extent like mechanically, there are some things that you just can't fast forward through because like you need, for example, to um, indulge in your vices in order like there is a mechanical benefit to doing that step as opposed to just like hand waving it. That wasn't my experience that I got super monotonous, although it's definitely like I think there's a lot of space to retire things and keep things fresh and make things new. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could even honestly um if you sort of, I don't know, get tired of what you're doing, you can make another crew in the same game and have your old crew be a, a player. Like, I, I think there's enough like intrigue and social stuff that if you have a group of people who's really like interested in doing that, then the game doesn't get monotonous. But if you have people who are really into the like doing a heist portion, it could get maybe a little bit stale. Well, and I wonder, and I haven't run it, but one of the things that I really like about how this is built and how it functions is that it sounds like your GM isn't necessarily doing a lot of like session prep because each session starts with, okay, what do we want to do? Like what as a group is our goal and does that involve us stealing something from someone, roughing someone up, getting information, like what is the thing that's animating the players right now, which is a very different mindset from how a lot of if we're looking at like D&D or other like Pathfinder, that kind of thing, where like a DM, because there's so much stuff, um, is expected to prepare like a series of 
encounters or like choices for the players to make and here instead it's like oh you guys want to go to that district okay let me like flip over to this page here's the gangs that are there like you want to rob this jewelry shop oh bummer for you turns (laughs) out this is under the protection of your rival gang how exciting um Mm -hmm. and you can just like very quickly dive into that in a way that makes it both very engaging and like off the cuff and surprising i think in ways that like i have prepared a three-hour session for you and hopefully we will go to places that are exciting um is just a different vibe i don't know Mm -hmm. yeah there's a page in the book that's uh i don't remember what it's called but it's like principles of play or like how to play or something um and it has a phrase on it that it that says act first plan later which Mm -hmm. is both mechanically reinforced through the like flashback thing but also i think it's just a good um like i i just want to embrace that in all of my role-playing game life there are places where that's difficult logistically but i really love the uh ethos behind it well, I mean, it's definitely like I feel like that's a trope in the TTRPG community broadly is like the group, the group of players who spends an hour and a half like quibbling over the details of a plan that they then jettison immediately. So I feel like this game is like actually like really meaningfully saying, OK, like we're not we're not going to do that. And one of the ways that this manifests is a thing that sort of ties back into that like TV show structure that Harper talks about, um, which is this emphasis on like you start in media res like they're they're is explicit guidance for the GM to be like, okay, like you're on the roof of the house that you're going to rob. Um, and one of you is halfway through the window. What do you do or whatever? Um, like it's like, there's no opportunity. There's no like out to be like, okay, like let's talk about what we're going to do. Like you are, you are doing it (laughs) and there is no Mm -hmm. way to stop. Um, which I think is really, uh, really exciting at least from a gm perspective that feels so much more dynamic to me than like facilitating a discussion which is what sometimes um gming D can feel like yeah and like the the uh, the hours of my life spent ga- gaming out combat strategies or like trying to guess what hazards will come up and buying the appropriate equipment to meet them yeah, I like Blades in the Dark. I like how they do that. I like I like that system. I'm trying to remember what's the the first role that you do, like when you enter that medius res. So there's kind of like the chance to do the free play, which is basically just role playing. Um, but when a score starts, mm-hmm. um, which is the term that the book uses for that there is what's called an engagement role Um, Mm -hmm. the gm makes that role which is basically uh i was not gming our game so i i don't remember the exact details but uh the the engagement role is basically to decide okay you have started this score and something unexpected is going on um because otherwise we would just fast forward and be like oh good you stole the money or whatever (laughs) yeah Uh, but something unexpected has happened and like how dire is it you know, like mm-hmm. at the start of things kind of ticking, how what kind of situation are you in? Is it just like, oh, there's one more guard than we expected? Or is it like, oh, crap, there are, you know, angry dogs and scything blades. That kind and of the structure is sort of replicated in all of the ways that you approach roles, because something that I think 
is like the core mechanic of like a forged in the dark game, which is the name for games that borrow Blades in the Dark's sort of mechanical structure, um, is that before you roll, the GM will decide uh, what the position is that you're doing this action from and what the effect scope might be so they could say um you're doing this from a controlled position like you have a lot of power you're not taking a lot of risks um like this is probably pretty easy and the effect as a result might be like kind of minimal like you might not have a lot of ability to like make a lot of meaningful change with the thing that you're trying to do or you could be like from a desperate position which makes it a lot harder but also i think increases the potential for reward although i don't like it's it's there's a lot of permutations like you can match any of the positions and effects together based on what narratively makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and what what I thought was really like exciting about the the engagement role is like good or bad you're in it. It's yeah. not yeah. you guys snuck up to the estate and you're like picking the lock and it's going badly so you're doing like 15 lock picking checks. Like that's not what's happening. It's just like you're in it, we're going, how do we keep going? Mm-hmm. Um and pulling out is an option, but is like rarely the option you want to go for um, because it's always fueled towards like dynamic action and increase in stress, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I think all of this is sort of funneling into like the core sort of GM player philosophy of this game, which is that everything is a negotiation and you are coming to it as like, I would argue as GM and players first and foremost to have like, and above the table conversation about like, here's the situation you're in. Here is what I think the consequences of, uh, of of opening this ancient sarcophagus might be. Does that sound about right? And it's a conversation. But there is also specificity about who gets to have the final say in certain situations. So there is no like weird stalemate. But I think I think it's nice that there is explicitly just like you as the people at the table are having a conversation about what's going to happen. And then we play to find out what happens. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I very much like that, like players decide whether something should work or not within the fiction. And the GM has final say on like how effective it is. So like, yeah, can you use a squirt gun on a house fire? Sure. Will it be very effective? <laughs> like maybe not. <laughs> Um, And it goes back and forth to shift like who has agency and final control. But the encouragement is that it's all a conversation and you're all talking back and forth about like what can and can't work or what an effect will or won't be. Mm -hmm. And there's this is under the hood. And I think, you know, hopefully you you don't end up with this exact situation. But that uh, part of the thing is that all of the players different skills are kind of fuzzily defined and you can there, there can be some openness about like what kind of die roll am I actually going to make to accomplish this thing I've just described. And of course, players are always going to want to use the one that they're they're best at. And players have the final say, if I remember correctly, over what it is. But because the GM has final say over the consequences, there's a there's a balancing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I feel like it's a more mechanically sound way to do what paranoia does, which is like, I, the player, am going to pitch you on what I think this should be. <laughs> um, yeah, like this is this is the like less fuck it version of that. Um, paranoia is deeply mechanically sound. As long <laughs> sorry, as no, the no mechanics shakes. you like are are uh, 
antagonism and pranksterism. <laughs> the two most important mechanics in any game, Nick. Um, uh, another point about this that I think is is interesting is is that the game is really while there are a lot of mechanics and we'll like talk about this at length in the future all of the determinations in the system are made on the basis of narrative and their effect on the narrative and their potential impact on the narrative as opposed to that sort of like D&D style like I did or did not meet the difficulty class of this action like you're leading with uh yeah using your squirt gun on the house fire probably won't have a significant effect on the bad like on how destructive the house fire is going to be <laughs> so i'm gonna like let's negotiate that out as opposed to saying like it does four points of water damage right to the f- yeah 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 i think it's also you know when we say it's all narratively based one of the things i like about that is that it there are so many mechanics uh, that while I'm sure people get used to it eventually, I think it is actually kind of hard to metagame because of those different permutations that Percy already mentioned of like there's you know controlled, risky or desperate maneuvers that can have. Uh, I think it's like lesser standard, limited, standard limited, and great. Thank you, standard or greater effects. And that is so much to keep in your head that I think. Oh, certainly we in the podcast kind of default to just deciding what it you know what sounds right and then seeing how the chips fall rather than trying to game out the exact thing of like well this is risky so that odds of the dice are this but the you know effect is great so the odds that i get a this the result i want are xyz like that's not really encouraged and maybe not even possible at least for most people in the system Mm-hmm. Um, to dig a little bit in more into into the mechanics, um, the actual like way you resolve things in Blades in the Dark is with the dice pool system, um, and it uses that sort of powered by the apocalypse style idea of ranges of success. Like I believe, if you roll the highest possible number, if you roll a six, it's a it's a full success, and then there's limited or partial success, and then you can have a bad outcome. And within your pool. Uh, and like there's different various ways that you decide how many dice are in that pool, but the highest individual number that you roll is what decides whether or not you succeeded, which I think is interesting because most dice pool mechanics that I see have to do with like three or more successes that you roll or you roll X number of dice above a certain number as opposed to just like, like I, I think this method of dice pool creation um, encourages risk taking in a way that is really exciting. You are also likely the the partial success is on a four or a five. So as long as you are able to roll at least one die, which you, for reasons we'll get to in a sec, you pretty much always can do if you want to. Um, You have 50-50 odds of succeeding at the thing partly anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really does encourage you to like take a swing. Yeah, the four major types of rolls that you can do in Blades in the Dark, although there are like a million like including the engagement role is not on this list um there's a lot of other roles there's a lot of roles but the sort of the four main ones that come up in that cycle of gameplay that we described are an action role which is essentially like when you try to do a thing um a downtime role which is sort of to assess in the downtime phase 
um, how much progress you might make on a project that you're working on or how much gambling if I like if gambling is your vice, how much gambling you get in or whatever. Um, uh, there's such a there's a role called a fortune role, which is essentially like maybe your negotiation at the table or your conversation about what something might be. Is it a complete stalemate? And the GM is just like, fuck it, we'll leave we'll we'll leave it up to chance. Um that is your fortune role and then a resistance role, which allows a player to say, I don't want this effect, so I'm going to roll and take on stress to try to make this less bad. Like if the GM says, okay, like you successfully block the door with the grandfather clock, but it falls over and like lands on your leg and breaks your leg and does this much harm to you. And they're like, oh, I actually don't want to do that. I'm going to roll resistance and try and like slide out. And you could take like a sprained ankle and stress instead of a broken leg, yeah. um, which might, you know, work better for you during this, but also gives you a lot of stress, which can lead to you. Uh, don't you have to like if your stress clock fills up, you have to indulge in your vices for a while? You have to you take a trauma. Yes. Mm. Yeah, we can kind of discuss stress. There is uh, harm. I was going to say stress is like. Uh, hit points are in other games which is not quite right because there is harm but mm -hmm. harm is very abstract and it is also not a counter um you know it's just like you can if the if the consequences of something you do are disastrous it can just be like okay the consequences of this are you fall and break both your legs mm -hmm. you know you take i'm not gonna remember the numbers but i think that'd be like level two harm or may, no, it's, I think that'd be level three harm, which is like really disastrous. And like you can just have that happen to you without going through the level one and level two harm. It's not additive in that way. Stress is a little ticker that you mark boxes off on. But unlike harm, you choose to take it on for mm. various reasons. Um, and like Percy mentioned if you fill that stress meter all the way up during a heist, then you end up taking uh, trauma, which is permanent. Yay. And, well, what's Cheerful. interesting, what's interesting about trauma <laughs> out of context, that's a wild thing to say. Um, what's interesting about the trauma mechanic is that it's a it's essentially an adjective, an attribute that you add to your character sheet. And that informs the way that you role play and you get experience to incentivize you like actively playing that out. And I think that that is fascinating that like there's this very mechanical ticker that you add to in order to take on something that is ultimately like serves a narrative function in how you encounter the world. And I find that extremely fascinating. Um, there's also um, one of the things that I think is cool about this uh, system is the way you have like attributes and abilities um, and you can have up to four dice in a certain ability so if you want to you know wreck or skulk or do do all sorts of things that like determines what your dice pool is and there's two things that you can do if you don't have any skill points in a thing and one is you can just roll two dice and then take the lower value um, which I not think great. not great <laughs> very not great or um, using this stress mechanic, you can take on stress with something that you like do or don't have points in and get an extra dice um, to roll as part of your pool, which can give you a 50-50 shot at succeeding at something. So like if, you know, the, the city watch is coming around the corner and you're halfway through opening this door and you're not a good lock pick, like you might just do that real quick. 
and hope for the best. And like, maybe you open the door and maybe you shatter it. Um, but you have an option like there's there's kind of a, a get out of jail free option. But it well, it's not free is the problem because you take <laughs> on stress, which will very possibly bring you to trauma uh, as well. And I think that that's a really exciting way because I feel like in a lot of other like D20 systems, there's a lot of like, well, I'm not good at that thing. So like, why would I try it? And because you're scoundrels and, uh, you know, uh, living in hopefully for you lucky times um you you have the opportunity uh to to kind of shift things in your favor very quickly but at a cost yeah the other sort of cost like success at a cost sort of thing is a devil's bargain which is another sort of negotiation with the gm where the gm can say like yeah here's this explicit narrative like risk that you're going to take and that will happen no matter what but you can use it to get a bonus die um which i think is is a cool a cool thing that I have actually uh, implemented as a house rule into some games of D&D that I run because mm-hmm. I find it really uh, fun. Um, it is do you fun. give I'll... someone like advantage or like a plus yeah, I give three? Yeah, I give someone inspiration, an inspiration die. Um, mm-hmm. Or there's there's a lot of like ways to implement it that are more D&D specific. But um, yeah, I, I think it's another really good example of the way that Blades in the Dark like sets up this really specific GM and player relationship. Yeah. The other, the last thing you can do to get a bonus die is, um, uh, you can, uh, use teamwork. Um, so your allies, assuming that they're, they are in a position to help you can also, uh, pitch in and help out and, uh, grant you a bonus die to any particular role. Um, which I think is, is nice. I think the other sort of central mechanic of blades in the dark that determines like progress and success is the progress clocks, um, which I find like extremely, extremely useful in all spheres of my tabletop gaming life. Um, so it's essentially um, you can use progress clocks to either track your progress towards a goal. So if you're like doing research into the history of your family and it turns out there's like some shady shit happening or you're like, you're looking into some lore or something, you can have a progress clock that tracks how much time you're spending on it, how much success you've had and like actually finding something out that's useful or what have you. And there's also like progress clocks towards like the guards are walking down the hallway. Um, and there's a clock that the GM is using to sort of be like, okay, like this is, this is how much closer they're getting. And you can like add wedges. If for example, one of the PCs drops something on the ground and makes a really loud sound and they hear it and they're like, oh, we're going to start running faster sort of thing. So it's just a way of mechanizing in a way that is like more like less nebulous and more specific, like how things are happening in the world and on what timeline. Mm-hmm. I also like that this this is implemented to take a lot of abstract concepts and make them kind of concrete with mm-hmm. like you want to invent something like there's a whole section of the player's handbook, the, the resource guide that's just like, here's some things you could make and invent and also like. It's an invention. You could make anything. So like do some talking about like how complicated you think this is, how much you think it costs, and then like make some progress clocks, baby, and start ticking boxes because like, does it need to take three play sessions for you to do this thing? I don't know. Should it be one? Maybe. Like, let's figure it out together um, and see how you can push towards those abstract goals in concrete ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other sort of 
mechanic that I think a lot of people are familiar with, probably from like Blades in the Dark and the Forge in the Dark system, um, are flashbacks, um, which happen during a score and are sort of getting at what Nick was talking about earlier in that like plan later <laughs> um, sort of thing, which uh, are essentially a way for somebody to be like, hey, actually, let's flash back to when I um, gave one of the guards a bag of gold in exchange for looking the other way when we come through the door or whatever. Um, like it's a, it's a way for you as players to be like, okay, we plan for this moment. Here's my idea to circumvent this. Um, as long as you can justify it in fiction. Yeah. And they, these, the thing I love about flashbacks is that they can be huge or can be, um, like very simple. Uh, so with that one that Percy just described of bribing the guard, that it's kind of up to the players and the GM whether that wants to be an entire scene mm-hmm. that you kind of insert into the um, into the narrative and play it out, which may which might add stress or other costs or like, you know, some some mechanical consequences because you have it turns out you're already stressed because you spent last night, you know, bribing this guard um, or it could be as simple depending on on the cost and what the consequences are going to be of just marking a stress or even saying, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And it would have been super easy for you to do that. So we can just say it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what what's also exciting about it is like because you're starting in medias res and you aren't doing all of this planning it also gets to what makes heist movies very exciting which is that like there is a planning phase but then almost immediately we're usually thrust into the heist itself and then there's always a complication or two or three but often our intrepid thieving heroes have like, oh, we already figured out this one. Or like, oh, that that van is actually a robot driving a van and it's fake money inside. Um, they're not on to us. They're they're on to our our, you know, bait the whole time, um, which I think is always very exciting in a way that keeps both the. Like in that player is performer and audience thing, it allows for like fun surprises for the players without having to have the like, this is exactly how we will go through everything that we were going to do on this heist ahead of time. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very Ocean's Eleven, which feels mm-hmm. to me like the major kind of cinematic touchstone for the game. Yeah, like it it encourages risk taking. It says, you know, like it it stops you from even beginning to think that you might be able to plan for all possible contingencies and instead it's just like here are the contingencies mm-hmm. um to segue um there are a lot of like philosophical like ways that this game is structured that i think are really really cool that i'd love to bring to the table the first of which is that in the handbook uh harper does something that i think is really really exciting in terms of like accessibility which is that he explicitly is like here are the rules that you could like not use if you want a really simple, like if you're not familiar with this kind of game um, or you are just getting started and feel intimidated by like the wealth of all of the things in the handbook here, here are the core things that you need to use and you can add everything else on later, which is also a thing that apocalypse world does. And I find it just really, really lovely. It like in terms of like getting new people to feel game, to try a game like this. Um, like I it it also helps you even if you're not hand waving any of the rules, even if you're using everything in the handbook, it helps you as a GM or as a player be like, OK, this is like the heart of this game. This is what is most important. 
I mean, there's we haven't even really talked about the fact that the there are the player characters and then there's your crew, mm-hmm. which you would think are identical, but actually mechanically are not. You're not you're not just the like three or four badass thieves. You're actually the leaders of a initially small gang composed of supernumeraries who are really like as defined as you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the first things. I think I, I don't remember what Harper says about that, but, you know, that's, I think, a great example of do you want to play a game that is, in fact, only, you know, you four or whatever, like you four are the heroic thieves doing this thing on your own. You could cut the crew like mechanics of the game right out. And that that core loop of, you know, pulling off the heist, doing the flashbacks and so on would really not be affected at all i think similarly if you wanted if you were like i do not want this political intrigue thing there's like like climbing the ladder you could also remove that i like both of those things personally Mm -hmm. but it's at the the core of the game is neatly kind of uh suspended away from the rest of it in a useful way there's a section where harper is talking about like um the the heists and the crew um, being these like two different gameplay loops that you go through mm-hmm. um, where you like really zoom in to like what is happening right now um, on your heists and then you pull back and you see like the ripple effects of how that has affected you know your position with gangs x y and z um, with the gondoliers and the spirit wardens who are in the middle of you know a civil war in the streets over like who gets to touch the dead people stuff like that which is really exciting and there's all of these like narrative hooks that are in that but there's also the goals of your crew that you play as a unit for like are we going to like there's crew advancement in addition to player character advancement where like are we going to increase the the size of our you know hold that we have on the city and are we going to get some lookouts when we do that or are we going to expand into a new like front for one of our shops or something like that and it's all of these like very interesting and fiction generating decisions that you make as a unit um, which i imagine involves a lot of debate and back and forth which is exciting those are the exciting parts of storytelling to me are like how will these decisions affect what we're going to do or not Mm -hmm. this sort of openness within rigid boundaries is something i really love about john harper's work in general like right now i'm playing a different game he wrote called lady blackbird adventures in the wild blue yonder which is like a it's kind of like it's like a firefly game Mm -hmm. sort of the thing that strikes me about both of these is that not only are they sort of mechanically embodying this like here are sort of here are the core things that you can't do away with everything else like do what is interesting to you and here are the things you can strip away. But it also does that in terms of genre and world building, which I think is fascinating. Um, like you could play Blades in the Dark as like a really hardcore steampunk sci fi like you could like you depending on what character playbooks you choose like it could be like really sort of kind of fantasy vibes if you do a lot of like alchemy and things like that like it could be like a hardcore like thieven oceans 11 heist genre game and that kind of thing like there's a lot of i think flexibility to lean into the parts of the setting that are interesting to you in terms of genre and and world because there's so much lore and world building 
and it's similar in Lady Blackbird, but you could absolutely play as like sky pirate stuff or you could like make it super sci-fi, etc. But that's something I really love about about his work as a whole. Yeah, I think one of the things we've realized during character creation that one of the things that really determines the tone of the game is actually the so like I said, the crew is kind of another character. And just like you pick a playbook for your character, you pick a playbook for your crew and choosing that playbook really determines a lot of the of the tone because it, you know, they they're basically all different criminal specialties. Mm-hmm. So there's everything from like hawkers, which are, you know, selling kind of the middlemen, the like sellers of illicit goods to traditional thieves whose like name I'm forgetting. And then there, but there's a whole spectrum from like we sell, you know, maybe drugs, maybe just whatever we you know have decided our wares are on one end all the way to like murderers like assassins for hire which is a big like those are very different games um mm-hmm. if one of them you're spending literal not maybe not every single score but in in one of them most of your scores are like somebody has paid you to kill this person that's a i think a very big tonal shift and there's a lot of that built in there too like any powered by the apocalypse game the playbooks that you bring to the table are also going to like really shift up the the dynamic of the game Mm -hmm. well and what i like about that for the crew is it sets a tone for the players that the players are all agreeing Mm -hmm. to and you you can still have like a fun and loose campaign, a very gritty, grim, dark campaign while playing, let's say, the assassins, if that's what you want to do. But it lets everybody know, like, this is what we're agreeing to. These are yeah. these are the adventures that we're going on. I was talking with uh, one of my roommates about this today, about, like, why I'm so excited about Blades in the Dark. And it's like, yeah, you're all thieves, which is nice because you don't have to do any of that, like, well, how are the rogue and how are the paladin going to get along for this mission? Like, there's none of that. You already have, like, a set. We've agreed that this is the sort of work that we do, but we can still have interpersonal strife and interpersonal struggles between our characters as we go towards those goals. Um, but there's like a certain amount of buy-in built in um, mm-hmm. to to the work that you're going to be doing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, that there is room, though you are all by de- kind of by definition in this game, you are all criminals. But there's room built in for like a full spectrum of m- morality, too, because we mentioned vices earlier, like one vice you can choose is obligation. Um <laughs> Which is like a weird thing to describe as a as a vice in some ways. But what it means is like when you're done with the like score, the thing you go do to unwind or to like relax or to tend to yourself is an obligation to someone or something. It could be bad, but it also, you know, I've seen people be like, uh, you know, my obligation is to my family. I have like a spouse and children and like I need to take care of them. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know. I I like that. <laughs> yeah. We haven't touched on this part of the playbooks, but something that I think is really exciting when I first started reading through the different like character playbooks, I assumed, you know, you'd have someone who's good at fighting and someone who's good at sneaking and someone who's good at like ghost stuff. Um, and some of it kind of boils down to that. But I like that everybody has a range of moves 
Um, and like everybody has a spooky move, even if they don't interact with the yes. ghosts very much. And they're all very different, which was exciting. Like, I think there's one who can like use ghosts for disguises. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm wrong on that. Um, but other people can like use a ghost or like use the ghostly plane to like basically do scrying on on other people and stuff like that. There's mm-hmm. one who can whose special ghost power is that you can if you take it you can make contracts with ghosts yes and like make deals with them <laughs> which i just think it's really it's like expansive in that like yeah even if you in ways that i find a number of d20 systems are like no you can only do stuff that's like in this genre and this is like all of the characters have different ways of interacting with the world, but it doesn't mean that you don't know how to like climb a tree. Mm-hmm. And I feel like yeah. there's a lot of stuff that in, in a traditional D 20 system where it's like, yeah, you're just bad at climbing trees. Sorry. Don't, don't try that. Don't do that. That's just how your life is. And I'm very excited by the narrative possibilities and the, the different play styles that each of these uh, allows for. Something else kind of segueing from discussion of crews is that I really love that this game encourages you not only to think about you as an individual, but also your character's participation in a group and that you're also sort of co-piloting this separate entity, which is your crew. Like, I, I think it is another manifestation of that, like this game invites you to be on the outside in some ways, like you're invited to be in it and then sometimes you kind of hop out. And are looking sort of on a macro level at what's going on. And I think it's really cool that the game encourages you to do that and to sort of really dig into that. Like, what is the party doing and negotiate like what this group is doing as opposed to like there's no option in this game to be the edgy rogue loner who goes off on his own all the time. Um, Like, that's just not Mm -hmm. you just can't you just can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And if you try, the game will push back like. Not hard, but fairly, fairly strongly, I think. (laughs) Yeah, Um, because the consequences of attempting to go alone, I think, feel pretty uh, rough, given that so much of the game assumes that you have, you know, you have your allies around you to lend teamwork if you need to to do something challenging. You have your allies around you so they can rescue you if something goes wrong, if you take trauma and are removed from the current score yeah yeah like our sort of recurring theme in this episode at least is target like blades in the dark does a really good job at mechanically implementing a lot of like general philosophies and approaches that i feel like people praise in a in a ttrpg space of like it mechanically incentivizes you to care about your party composition and to care about what the other players are bringing to the table and what the other players are doing. Like, it's not just relying on you as individuals to care about that kind of thing, but it's actually like mechanically forcing you to, um, which I think is, is really interesting. Like, I think part of the reason this game feels so crunchy is because like there are mechanics that really reinforce the play style that it's inviting you to use. Mm -hmm. And like taking big risks for your friends is like a core component of the game that like you're gonna be but like (laughs) you're gonna be in risky situations and something's going to go wrong and so you need to like stick together and take risks for each other and have each other's backs 
is like how the mechanics force you to play, which is very exciting uh, when often, as you were just saying, so many people in TTRPGs are like, I'm going to go do this on my own. Maybe it'll blow up in my face. Well, and I feel like the game sets you up for success also in the way that it like structures itself in these really highly defined phases. Like there's no question about when is it a when is a good time in session to do a certain thing, because like it is so clearly defined for you when X, Y and Z things happen. Um, So I, I feel like it does a really good job of creating the conditions under which you are free to like fully invest in these things and find ways to support each other because you're all linked together and there's no like like individual interest is so tied up in group interest and there's so much agency as a player to be like this is the thing that I want to do and this is what I think that looks like and this is how I think it happens and to be able to fully just bring that to the table as opposed to like the GM having complete and total veto power about what does and doesn't appear. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. We will be back next week with the beginning of our session zero for our Blades in the Dark campaign. Uh, And we are very excited for you to hear it. Bye, y'all. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.